follow the church covenant. If they don't agree to live the way God says we should live in his word. Well, there is much uh, to discuss. Let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now, asking humbly that you would take this time and that you would use it for the upbuilding of your body. Uh, Lord, it says in your word that we should pray uh, for the needs of our church, God. We pray specifically now for the needs of our, our, our members and their physical bodies. We pray for uh, Ken Tedder. We thank you for his testimony of your faithfulness to him in the midst of his battle with cancer. Father, we pray that you would heal him, God, especially this upcoming uh, test where we pray it be a, a positive one. We pray for Jerry Green and the test coming this week. We pray, God, that you would just watch over him. Father, we pray that you'd watch over Ms. Barbara as she's preparing for, for back surgery. Uh, Father, there's so many unspoken requests in our church of uh, people who have real needs and may not have shared them. So, God, we pray that you and your kindness would meet them by your grace. Father, we, we, we ask now again for our nation. We pray that you would bring healing upon our land. God, we know that only true healing and true reconciliation comes through the gospel of the Lord Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would break the hearts of your people. You would break the hearts of your people to love all people. God, that you pray, I pray, God, that you would just work in churches all across the land today, that pastors would be wise in how they address the issues of the day. Father, we do pray against fear, Lord. We pray that people would not live in fear, but they would live in hope of the gospel of Christ. Father, we do pray that you would be with our officers. We pray that you would be with all those who may have negative feelings. God, we pray that you and your kindness would just watch over them. Father, we pray for the, for the proclamation of your gospel. Lord, we pray that you would continue to have the gospel go forth all over uh, the land today. We pray for uh, Kenneth Robinson, Lord, this morning. We pray that you would allow him to preach uh, powerfully and faithfully to your word. And dear God, we ask now that you would be with your people here. God, I thank you so much for the people that you've called together this morning uh, to sit under your word. Uh, Father, I pray that the words that I speak would, would be edifying and encouraging to them. God, I pray that, that I would say nothing but that which is true in your word, that I would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ is exalted, we pray, God, that you would call men and women unto yourself. We pray that you would use this message uh, to purify, to unify, and to strengthen your church, that we would be a better reflection of the glory of God. Of Christ. So, Father, we pray now that you would make much of yourself, you would make much of your word, and that you would bless your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so, the last two weeks we've been thinking about this idea of church covenant. Um, and today, we, what we want to look at is what happens in the life of a church when people choose no longer to live according to their profession of faith. All across America, you have churches who are empty. You have churches who uh, are full of, the, the roles of churches are full of people who say they believe in Jesus, but don't actually follow that. Uh, on, on an average Sunday here, we may get 130 people. And praise God for that. A couple years ago, it was about 70 or, or 75. Praise God that we have almost double the number, and yet our, our average uh, attendance is far lower than our church rolls. Our church roll is about 410 people. Well, where are the, the 275 people on, on a given week who are not here? Uh, well, today what, what I, what I want to do is I want to walk through why it's important to exercise removal of people who do not follow the church covenant. 
Now, when we start talking about this, a lot of, a lot of you know, things kind of fly off in your head. Well, I've never been part of a Baptist church who has practiced church discipline or who have removed people from membership. The idea of church discipline or removing people from a, 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 uh, being part of the body goes back all the way to the New Testament. Uh, I want to make a biblical case today that in the, in the Bible, the Bible says is that if people are not living according to what God says in his word, it is under obligation from God uh, and the Lord Christ to remove them from the church. Uh, historically, Baptist churches have always practiced church discipline. It wasn't until about 1900 when the practice kind of fell off. And if we are going to be faithful, living as a congregational church where the members of the church are the final authority of the church, it is essential that everyone would be a follower of Christ. So that's the, that's the goal today. And the thing is, is that when we think about the idea of discipline, we all love discipline in certain contexts, don't we? Uh, you know, we, we love the fact when we see a, a parent disciplining an ornery child when we're out shopping. We, we, we rejoice in that. We, we like when we, we watch our, our sports teams discipline people who are living in a way that is contrary to being a good, good citizen, even if they have to be removed from the team. There's certain times in our life in society we rejoice in discipline. And yet, when it comes to the church, we often don't rejoice in discipline. We often want to fight against it. So I, I pray that you'll just hear me as we, as, as we go through this, uh, because I do think this is one of those uh, areas in our church we have to improve on. Historically, there's three things that would qualify as a right church, a pure church, a true church. It's where the Word of God is rightly preached. I pray that everywhere in, in our congregation, the Word of God is rightly preached. Two, it's where the sacraments are rightly administered, the ordinances of the baptism and the Lord's Supper, when they are rightly practiced. And three, when discipline is rightly exercised. So the three things that will qualify a true church is the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right uh, exercise of church discipline. So let's dive in into uh, these points that I want to, to give with you. The first is removal Church removal from the body for the purpose of the church's Savior. For the purpose of the church's Savior. Uh, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. I want you to see how uh, this is not unique to, to Paul's writing in Titus' letters throughout the New Testament. But I just want you to see how, this, 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 how he uh, lays down his argument. In, the, in verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, Paul is exhorting uh, Timothy, or Titus rather, uh, to to teach the congregation how to live, and really how to live among society. So he says in verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. But what he's saying is this is how Christians should just generally live. It, it sounds almost similar to some of the, the ideas of the church covenant we looked at last week in Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21. Very, very clear to them, this is how Christians are called to live among the world. He's challenging them. And then he gives them the reason why we're called to live that way. And I think this is very important, because oftentimes when we think about the, the, the requirements that God lays out in his word, we, we, sometimes we, we, we miss the, the grace that God gives us first before he gives us the commands. 
You know, I think I sometimes I, I struggle with that as a parent. Sometimes I tell my kids to do things rather than explaining the why or giving them the grace of why they should obey their father's words. Look at verse 3. It's a reminder of where we all have been. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So before we followed Jesus Christ, we were sinners separated from God, alienated from the covenant of, of promise. So we lived our lives in such a way to bring condemnation on ourselves from God. Disobedience, lazy, foolish. Everybody's like Everybody is a, a sinner that needs God's grace. Everybody has been there. And because of that, therefore, every Christian should understand our daily need for God's grace. Every Christian should understand that, that we need a, a, a redeemer, something that comes outside of us to save us. Look at what the text says in verse 4. We were this way, and we see in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It's almost the same exact wording in verse 11 of chapter 2. What it says there it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jump back to verse 5 of chapter 3. It says that God, He saved us. And how did He save us? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Isn't that a beautiful thing? When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, foolish, disobedient, slaves to various kinds of passions, God appeared in Christ to save us. Not because of what you have done, beloved, but according to the mercy of God. When you think that God has saved you because of His mercy, that should cause us to be undone. We don't deserve the mercy of God, and yet He gives it. He gives it freely. Verse 7, So that being justified, made right by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to, you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is the idea of what we're all called to do as Christians. Because you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been called to devote yourselves to good works. You are saved from evil unto good works. You are saved from a slavery to sin so that you can be a slave unto righteousness. There's a change that happens in our lives when we come to Christ. And we should want people in our lives to push us to, to live unto good works. We should have godly friends and spouses who, when we're living in a way that is contrary to the gospel, they shed light on that. Why? Because we believe in God. And because we believe in God, we want, we want to live differently. Now we know what Romans 7 says. That even though I desire to do good, I do the things that I hate. We, we know that, right? When I, when I try to do good, evil is right there with me. But thanks be to God who can save us from this body of death. 
Jesus Christ, who, who died and rose again, who, who has poured into us His Holy Spirit, so now that we have new desires, new, a new heart that, that gives us uh, the, the emphasis to live for Christ. All Christians should have that. This is what he says here in verse 8. He keeps on going. says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Then he has this other transition. We all know that as Christians, we should want to live for the Lord. Amen? So if you're not living for the Lord and someone says, you're not living for the Lord in this way, if it's in God's Word, you say, thank you for letting me know that. Because I want to live for the Lord. But there are some people who are not living as Christians. Look what it says in his Word. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division. It's interesting. When we start thinking about church discipline, there's a lot of things that, we can, we can, that Paul could emphasize. But Paul says here is the one who is divisive with their words, who is stirring up division. Whether that division is, is trying to believe something that is contrary to the Bible, or is the stirring up division to go against leadership or slandering individuals in our, in, our, in our church to have factions, whatever it may be. As for that person, warn him once, then twice, then have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, and what? Self-condemned. Everything that I'm going to tell you from God's Word of why we need to practice church discipline is that when people choose to live in a way that is contrary to God's Word, they are self-condemned. All the church is doing is affirming the way people have chosen to live. Either they live for God or they're living for themselves and the evil one. And all we're saying is we agree with you. We hope you repent. We want you to come back. We want you to live for the Lord and Him and Him alone. We want you to live by His grace, but if you choose not to, we want you to know that you are self-condemned. You are choosing to live in your own sins. That's very different than the church saying, we don't love you, you're gone. That's not church discipline. The first point, we remove people for the purpose of the church's Savior. As Christians, you represent Christ. You are ambassadors of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And because you represent Him, you want to give a good reflection of Him. So when we come together as the body of Christ, we reflect Christ to each other and to the watching world. And if we give a false representation of Christ, we may be leading people to damnation. We may be giving people false hope that they're actually saved when they're not. You see how serious this is? The Bible says that when we exalt Christ, when we lift high His name, Christ will draw all men to Himself. So the, the, the whole thing that holds this whole idea of church together is that Christ is the head. And we represent Him. Period. And when people choose not to live for Christ, they're giving a false representation of Him. And it's our obligation under God's Word to remove them from the church. Number one, the purpose for church is Savior. Two, Removal for the purpose of the church's purity. The purpose of the church's purity. First Peter, uh, chapter 1, 
Peter says is that we need to live our lives as holy people. He who called us, God, is holy. Therefore, be holy in all your conduct. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes that we were not called in impurity, but we were called in holiness. In Acts chapter 5, at the very beginning of the early church, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land and carted off a little bit of of the rewards for themselves. And they lied to the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. They lied to God, grieving the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they died. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about those who are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It says, some are sick and some have died. The problem in in many churches across our land is that we don't care about purity. We don't care about holiness. When we sing, holy, holy, holy. What we're saying is that is you, God, and we want to be holy like you are holy. We want you to prepare us to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. We must care about our purity. We must care about sin. We cannot overlook it. The third thing, we remove removal for the purpose of the church's unity. For the church's unity. How can a church be united around the gospel of Christ, the, 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 the powerful, beautiful gospel of Christ that says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we came to repentance through belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now we're living a brand new life for Christ. How can we be united around that message if we don't care about how we live? How can we be united in Christ If some people can live one way, others can live another, and neither of them are are matched up with God's Word. So I said this last week, one of the obligations of all Christians is that we need to work hard for unity in the bond of peace. That's Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. We need to be imitators of God, striving for unity. Jesus prayed that in the garden. Father, may we be, as we are one, let the the people of God be, be one. We have to be one in something. Unity, for unity's sake, is not a good thing. Unity's sake has to be around the truth. It has to be around the truth. It has to be centered on the word of Christ and the gospel. Number four, removal for the purpose of the church's fruitfulness. For the church's fruitfulness. We want our church to bear fruit. What does that look like? It means this. We want people to become to Christ. We want our congregation to grow in number. Why? Because we want people called out of darkness and into the wonderful light of the gospel of Christ. Amen? We want people to follow Jesus. But not only do we want more people here following Jesus, we want the people here following Jesus more. That means we want to have a greater desire in our own hearts to love Christ, to have more joy in Christ, more peace in Christ, more self-control, more more holiness. We want the, the people of God to bear more fruit. And Jesus says this, sometimes I have to prune you. John 15. Sometimes I have to prune you, meaning I have, to, I have to, to cut things away from you so that you can bear more fruit. 
And beloved, sometimes God is going to have to prune His church. I mean, sometimes God is going to have to cut people from the church who are destroying it so that we can bear more fruit. It's a biblical principle that we may shrink to grow. Number five, removal for the purpose of the church's saints. For the church's saints. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've done any study on uh, church discipline or the church, you you know that 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a very important passage when we think about the the life of the church. Uh, Go with me in chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter and then make a couple points um, over the next few um, points. Make a couple points over the next few points. We call that redundant or repetitive, just to make it clear. Number 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this, this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I, am, I have already pronounced judgment on one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan and for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater or a reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with the judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So the first thing I want you to see here is that if you don't remove people who choose to live in sin, you actually hurt the entire body of Christ. See what it says there in verse 6? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. If you allow sin in the body, that sin is going to grow. Paul uses this almost the same exact analogy in, in Titus or first second Timothy chapter two, when he says that there are certain teachers teaching things that their their, their teaching is like gangrene. It's only going to spread. Now if you have gang, gangrene, the only way that you can get rid of it often is, is chopping off a limb. You chop off a leg and then the whole body is spared. 
But beloved, if we allow sin to be among our members, whether that's division, sexual morality, drunkenness, reviling, slander, whatever it is, unattendance, whatever that is, what you're doing is that is only going to spread among other people. So if I love Travis Bullard and somebody in, 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 in our church is living in sin and I don't address it, well, then I really don't love Travis Bullard because he's going to be affected by it and everybody else in this body. A little leaven will, will work its way throughout the entire body. This is why it's an it's a, it's a obligation for every single member of the church to live their life in such a way to, to, um, to understand that their lives impact others. You see how that works? We have to understand that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Even in this same book, the one we're looking at, Titus uh, chapter 1, it says that there are some people who need to be silenced because their teaching is upsetting whole families to walk away from, from Christ. You have to do it for the sake of the saints. So if there's people in our congregation that I love, well, it's my obligation, and I'll get to this in a second, your obligation to address sin in all its forms under God's word. The second thing, or the number six, according to this passage, I would say, removal for the purpose of the church's sinners, of the church's sinners. And what I mean by that very specifically is those who choose sin over Jesus. Those who choose sin over Jesus. Look what it says in verse three. It says, though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Then he says this, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, so when we gather as a church under the name of Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan. What that means is you're, you're, you're going to deliver this man outside of the body if he doesn't repent. Meaning you're going to look at him and say, we don't think, based on the evidence of your life, that you're a Christian. That's what it's saying. You put them out of the fellowship of the church. Why? Notice the why. For, purpose, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know, one of the reasons why we don't practice church discipline today is because we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And there's some good in that, okay? I don't want any of you to intentionally try to hurt my feelings, okay? I, I may have a strong constitution, but I can be kind of a sensitive soul, right? We all, we all have those moments. But the bottom line is, is if someone is walking towards a fiery death, if someone is going towards the end of a cliff and they're about to, to go off to their, to their death, what are you going to do? You're going to grab them. Hey, turn around! Stop! You're going the wrong way! And if you didn't tell them they're going the wrong way, would you really care for that person? This is what the Bible says. If you choose your sin over Jesus, you may not be a believer. It doesn't mean that you're not a believer. right? There's room for that. Even strong Christians fall into sin. Okay? We're not saying that if you are removed from a fellowship of a church that you're not a Christian. The church doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus makes you a Christian. Repentance and faith make you a Christian. Right? I mean, the Holy Spirit, by renewing of your heart, makes you a believer. All the church is doing is affirming what, what possession, profession of faith that you made, based on the evidence of your life. 
So if you start living in a way that is contrary to Christ, so someone is living in habitual uh, drunkenness, they're getting drunk every single night, they're not going to church, their drunkenness is causing them to be angry with their spouse, uh, causing them to be violent, all these things. And if we as a church do nothing, then we are denying what the New Testament says. Do not be deceived. Those who um, practice unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not know that the drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God? The greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. The reviler will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if I love people who are, who are committed drunkenness, or if I love people who are committing adultery, the only thing, according to God's word, if this person professes the name of Christ, is to tell them how serious their sin is and to repent. To put them out of the fellowship so that they would be saved on the last day. That they would be, their eyes would be open to realize the seriousness of their sin. Like Ken said this morning, that we are not guaranteed tomorrow a Mack truck could hit you on the way home today. And if you are not in Christ, you may perish for all eternity. And if we don't bring that message to those who are struggling deeply and habitually and the pattern of their life in sin, well then we really don't love them. So, there are people who are members of our church right now we haven't seen in 30 or 40 years. Do you know, according to God's word, it is a sin not to be in church? So what, what, what do we say to those folks? I, I, Pastor, don't worry, I'm okay, I'm a Christian. Well, then why aren't you in church? Well, I got this going on, I got this going on. Okay. You need to be in church. Well, I know, I know, I should be, Pastor. I'm just not gonna. I'm just, I'm just I, I just can't make time. But I'll, I'll pray for you, and I'll, I'll send you a check every now and again. If you don't come to church, you are proving that you are not a Christian. That's the message of the Bible. Let the weightiness of that sink in. Now, I've done a lot of funerals. And when funerals happen, we want to believe the best about the person who's deceased. And we want to give people hope. And God may be gracious and say, people who have lived a life that is, not con- that is, that is contrary to Christ, he may show mercy in the last of their days to have them repent and trust in Christ. But guys, we cannot play around with God. God will not be mocked. And I think that time and time again, we mock God by not exercising church discipline. By not believing that his word is actually true. We want to believe in that his word, that Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay for my sins and rose from the dead to give me hope for all eternity. We want to believe that with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And yet we don't want to believe that God will condemn those who live a life of sinfulness. You can't have one without the other. If you care for sinners, you will tell them they are sinners and call them to repentance. Number seven, removal for the purpose of the church's polity. Removal from the church's polity. Look in 1 Corinthians 5. Look what it says. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, plural, among the church. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you, plural, church, are arrogant. Ought you, church, plural, not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, church, plural. You notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't address the pastor of the church. 
He doesn't say, pastors, how dare you allow this in your congregation? What does he do? He looks at the body of Christ and says, how dare you? How dare you make light of sin? Do you know that one day everyone who's a member of this church will stand before God in judgment and how you exercise the keys of the kingdom of God in this local church? You will be held accountable before God on how we live amongst each other. I think it's easy to blame it on the leadership when God calls every single person as a member of a Baptist church congregationally, the final authority is in the people of God. That's why everyone who comes a member of the church has to be a born-again believer. It is your responsibility to confirm the confession, our beliefs, and who are the, the right confessors of that confession. Who are those who truly believe in Christ? That this is not to, to look at sins under, under rocks and try to, to, to find everybody out, but no, it's, it's to love people in such a way to, to help them find their happy rest in God at the last day. But not only does it, is, is the goal for the members of the church to care about sin and the reflection of Christ, the Bible says very clearly that leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, are going to be held accountable before God. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I think it's, implication here is that people should be members of a local church. People should be submitting to a specific group of leaders. This is obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Beloved, one day I know that I'm going to stand before God I'm going to stand before his judgment seat and he's going to, to, to judge me on how I care for every one of you. Was I honest with them? Did I think people weren't really Christians and I just let them pass? That I just let sin slide by? Well, he's going to say, that blood is on your hands, Pastor. I don't have the... the um, I don't have the right not to exercise church discipline. Which brings me to the next point. Removal for the purpose of the church's obedience. For the church's obedience. If you notice what it says in, to the church of Corinth in chapter 5, verse 12. It says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, God judges those outside. Who judges those inside? We do. We are under obligation from God if we are going to be obedient to judge those within our congregation. Now, I'm not talking about the judgment in terms of looking down. I'm talking about the, the final judgment when you confirm, are they, are they believers or are they not? That's what he's trying to get at here. Purge the person who is evil from among you. Meaning the person who consistently, habitually lives their life in sin, you are under obligation to judge them outside the body so that, so that they would come back. So that they would come back and their eyes would be open. They would be awakened by the power of God and be, be safe in the last day. God says, Jesus says himself, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So in many ways, church discipline at its core 
comes down to love, which is our last point. Removal for the purpose of the church's love. For the purpose of the church's love. Oftentimes, when we begin this conversation about church discipline and, and having people removed from membership roles and excommunicated, all these conversations, it, the, the language starts to, to go around that that's a very judgmental church. Uh, that's a very unloving church. But can I just tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell? Church discipline is love. It's, it's hard love. I pray we never have to exercise it. I pray that people would stay in Christ, that they would abide in Him. But do we love God enough to obey His Word? Do we love each other enough to, to let them know when they're in sin? Tonight, at our members' meeting, I'm going to lay out a plan on how do we do this. How do we do this in such a way that is, that is caring, that is loving, but that is true according to God's Word. You know, a lot of the things that we are, are dealing with in the life of our church have been there for years. You know, we've had a lot of problems in the church over the years, and they have to be dealt with, you know, in love and in grace. And if we don't, well, we may be in trouble. We may be in trouble because the little leaven may continue to leaven the whole entire lump. We may be telling sinners who are in danger of God that they're okay and they're not. And we, we, we may be bringing down the reputation of Christ our Savior. This is very serious matters. Uh, and I pray that we would continue to do this in, in a wise way. If this is the first time you have really thought about church discipline, can I, can I encourage you to, 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 to study God's Word and just see how it's all over the pages of the New Testament? Um, so I encourage you that we want, always want to be a people of the book. right? We want to be Bereans. So the things that I say, if they're not accurate, study God's Word, read it. Revel in it. How we conduct ourselves in the life of the church is, is not an option. It's been prescribed to us in God's Word. So I pray that we would just be faithful. So that one day we will see Christ in all His glory when He comes to bring His people to Himself. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your Word. God, when I think about church discipline, uh, Lord, it is not a fun topic to think about. But God, we need people to commit to love one another, uh, to live their lives in obedience to you, uh, to live their lives unto good works. For we all were once foolish and disobedient. None of us are, uh, are deserving of, of pride. None of us can save ourselves. All of us were not saved by our righteous works, but by the, by the mercy of God. So God, I pray that we would always live in light of that mercy. And yet, God, I pray that we would just hold people accountable to the decision that they made when they decided to follow Christ. And that we would be faithful to your word when they don't. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.